0: Hey, before we get started, I want to thank one of our brand new podcast supporters, Cody Martin. Cody decided to become a Patreon supporter of the podcast, which means he supports the podcast financially on a monthly basis. So, Cody, I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate everybody else who has become a supporter, whether that's through Patreon or just through a one-time donation. But really, I just appreciate everybody listening. It means a ton. The listens, the nice emails y'all send, and the comments on social media and the kind iTunes reviews. It's more than I ever expected. So can't tell you how much it means. And um, I'm going to keep cranking out good episodes for you. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Chandra Brown. Chandra is an educator, writer, and river guide who has worked on the West's most iconic rivers, including many seasons below the rim of the Grand Canyon. She's also the founder of the Free Flow Institute, a unique Montana based program that offers multi day river trips for writers and creatives that combine immersion in the natural world with instruction from some of the West's most well known, prolific outdoor writers. By combining creativity with adventure in some of the West's most spectacular landscapes, Free Flow helps to eliminate the barrier between artist and environment, resulting in creative inspiration and an increased desire to preserve our wild places. Growing up in Alaska, Chandra has always had a close connection to the land and life in the outdoors. It was during a family trip to Montana during high school that she fell in love with Rivers. Since then, Rivers have played a foundational role in both her personal and professional lives. She attended college in Bozeman, studied in Ecuador as a Fulbright Scholar, and spent extensive time on rivers in both places. Currently, she burns the candle at both ends, teaching high school Spanish during the school year and guiding rivers in the summer, all while working as a freelance writer and building the Free Flow Institute from the ground up. Thanks to her love of books, writing, adventure, and conservation, Chandra is a perfect guest for this podcast. We cover a lot in just over an hour, including the genesis of the idea for the Free Flow Institute and how she turned that idea into a reality. We talk about some of the well-known writers who teach on free-flow trips, including Hal Herring, Chris Dombrowski, and past podcast guests Alexis Bonagovsky and Brendan Leonard. We talk about lessons learned from her time in Ecuador, her creative process for writing, and her own writing heroes and mentors. We discuss conservation, adventure, and of course, her favorite books, films, and locations in the West. Chandra is an amazing woman who's pursuing her passions with an amazing amount of focus and determination, and she's created something very special in the Free Flow Institute. Check out the episode notes for links to everything, including a short film that gives an excellent overview of the project. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you generally answer that question?
1: (laughs) I feel like my answer to that question fluctuates with the seasons. But, um, I think first and foremost, I identify myself as a, as a, as an educator. Yep. And, um, so I spent much of my life teaching other people, um, in a variety of different settings and classrooms. Um, so on the river and informal classrooms and, um, and I also am trying out this. I'm trying out calling myself a writer without any sort of qualifications or disclaimers prior prior to that statement, and that's been feeling pretty good lately. The last few years, um, and a river guide. I mean, through and through, I'm a bit of a bit of a river rat.
0: That's great, and. I think when you combine all three of those, I don't want to talk in detail about all three of those, but maybe the best place to start is the combination of those three with the free flow Institute, because that's how we were kind of introduced. Somebody turned me on to your, your program, your, your coworker, Stephanie. And so I'd love to hear, maybe we can start with you just talking a bit about free flow and the program and how that came into being.
1: Yeah, for sure. So free flow Institute's just a couple of years old. Um, we ran our first pilot season in summer of 2018 and the whole idea here um came to me um, via a good friend who um, is now an advisor to the free flow institute but he came back after a week up at the bamf filmmakers festival or workshop and he he was like chandra i've got this great idea and i think this is a way to fuse sort of all of your professional affections into one project and um so the idea, truth be told, wasn't mine, but I, I snagged it and, and ran with it. And um, so the whole idea is to get, you know, thinking people, creative people, innovators out into wild spaces and afford them space and time and and guidance to, to bring their ideas to fruition and... Um, at the end of the day, we're hoping to empower advocates for wild spaces with words and community. Um, so right now, the Free Flow Institute, coming into its second season, um, is offering primarily multi-day river trips that are led by an amazing host of, of prolific and successful writers um, that sort of offer their guidance and their, um, their tutelage. Uh, in, in in such an amazing venue you know in any number of western rivers
0: that's that's really a great description of it and I you know the, the thing is lots of people have great ideas um, but taking it from an idea that's just rattling around in your head to reality is a whole different deal so you know from the from the time that you and your your colleague kind of T- threw that idea around until the time you started it, you know, started the season last year. I mean, how long was that? And what was the process like of making this idea into a reality? Cause that's, that seemed, you know, it just seems like like quite a challenge and quite an accomplishment.
1: Yeah. Thanks. It's, um, it's definitely still in process and, and it, and sometimes it's, um, it's hard to remember, And hard to acknowledge that it actually is happening because it is, it's something of a dream. It's just, uh, the, the notion of taking people downstream on a river trip and working on writing and having these incredible revelatory conversations along the way. It's like, Oh, we're actually, we're doing that. You know, um, that seems still, I, I still sometimes have a hard time acknowledging that it's, that it's real. Um, and, you know, so I guess the process was mostly, you know, I just got a, a business license and started begging my really smart friends to help <laughs> me with the pieces that I didn't understand. Yeah, um, you know, super talented entrepreneurs and um, just kind of picking their brains. I built a website and then called on two wonderful and courageous and flexible writers, um, that were just keen to try it out. And that's, um, you know, last year that was William Dubuiz and Hal Herring. And, uh, yeah, they were super keen and, you know, both Bill and Hal have ample wilderness experience. And so they weren't going to be flustered by the chaos of a river trip and trying to, make this you know facilitate this fusion of the, of a of a classic river trip and and a writing seminar workshop um and we just tried it and it works so well we're going to just keep doing it
0: that's really cool and I don't know how hearing personally but I've I've read a lot of his work and a, a lot of people that I've met through this podcast seem to have a connection with him and he seems like a super cool guy and i'm sure bill is as well i just i'm not as familiar with him but can you talk a little bit about how and his work and kind of what he brought to that trip because I, maybe i'm attracted to him because we have the same accent that's probably
1: why yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's fair and that is fair i could sit and listen to hal herring talk for hours on end um and you know and a lot of that is that accent in memory <laughs> of that accent but um yeah. You know, he's a bit of an icon yeah. here, you know, in the West and in, in Montana. He lives not so very far from where I am here in Missoula. Um, he's just, he's a contributing editor at, at Field and Stream magazine. He's written extensively for high country news. Um, he's written a book about guns and, one of the things that I love about Hal is he doesn't subscribe to any one political ideology yep. and that makes him incredibly dynamic. Um he's he's unpredictable in in his in the in the things that he believes in the things he will uh, uh get behind. You know, he's a conservationist, he's a hunter, he's an angler. Uh, he does that um, podcast for the backcountry hunters and anglers.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely.
1: And he interviews some really fascinating characters on there. And, again, it's just an opportunity to listen to him talk. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so that trip that Hal ran last year is on the Missouri River um, with a little uh, uh, side trip to the American Prairie Reserve. and. It was a little nichey. It was aimed toward um, journalists, working journalists and students of journalism that wanted to, you know, study with Hal and talk about how to tell a good story and how to talk about place and um, the issues within place, places that are important to us here. That was a great trip.
0: Yeah. And I think the way you described him, that he doesn't really subscribe to any one particular ideology i think that's i would guess that that's so important in a trip like this just kind of an open-minded person and i, I know that this summer you've got two pa- past guests from my show brendan leonard and alexis Bonagovsky, coming and they seem to fit that um description as well you know they they just both super super smart but think about things in their own way and have opinions that, that may be surprising to somebody who wants to box somebody in. And I mean, is that an, I mean, obviously you're looking for good writers, but is that kind of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, flexibility or the ability to think outside of box, something you look for as well in, in these instructors?
1: Oh yeah. I think it, I think it's gotta be a priority, you know, when we're considering who would be a good, uh, facilitator for these for these trips I mean one you gotta just like hal just like Bill, you know you've gotta be comfortable with the the discomfort of being away from the predictable right mm-hmm. like out in the i mean anyone that spends any time um outside away from creature comforts um knows that you you've got to you've gotta be flexible um and I think that that characteristic um of flexibility and um, adaptability also has to be reflected in in the way you interact with your with your participants and with your co-instructors um and with the environment itself and then you take that a step further and you know some someone like hal or brendan or alexis um I mean and I, I have actually yet to meet Brendan or Alexis, but just through the you know reading their work and their conversations um, you can't be too attached to any one outcome or any one ideology um, and and I think that's something you learn in working with people um, within an educational setting too as as soon as you as soon as you start um, erecting these these walls that are the constructs meant to protect. Your perceptions, your beliefs, your ideologies, you kill your curiosity, and then you in turn kill curiosity of of your students.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I would guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but in my experience on some of these wilderness trips, like I did a semester in Knowles during college, and then I've done a, a few different, you know, longer climbing trips around. And it being out there in the wilderness and having this shared goal and having to kind of watch out for each other it seems to break down a lot of maybe barriers that in the real world would cause trouble like political opinions or things like that because i've been on climbing trips before and my tent mate has been people that have kind of extreme right-wing views which is not really how i align but we're able to get past that because every day we have to get on a rope together and look out for each other and so i would guess that being able to cut that knock down those barriers helps with the creative process as well. Is that, am I anywhere near the truth there?
1: Oh, I think you're spot on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the beauties of, I mean, whether you're climbing, whether, you know, you're, 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 you're backpacking, you know, and, and whether you're on a, on a river trip, it's like that, that outdoor experience, that removal from the, from the from modernity the removal from the familiar is the great equalizer Mm -hmm. you know it's like we are and I, i work in the summertime i work these 14 15 day river trips in the grand canyon and i just am always amazed at how how hard we might try to maintain our um our sort of external, like the, the our shells, right? These these constructs of ourselves, our perceptions of ourselves. We might try to to, to maintain um, who we think we are above the rim. And, and, and once we get down there and once we're on that river for, you know, three, four, 14 days, it's like that's all stripped away. And mm-hmm. the only thing that's left is the essential and the real and the authentic. And so – yeah, I, I think then, it, you know, along those same lines, um, it, it's it's not just reductionist in nature. It's it's also you're in in removing those layers um, and and revealing the authentic uh, uh, self beneath those layers. You're also opening up a, a whole world of, of creativity and freedom that was maybe just lying dormant before.
0: Yeah, I'm such a huge fan of of outdoor education or just outdoor experiences. Actually, in my podcast with Brendan, he um, told me about a book called The Nature Fix by Florence Williams, I think mm-hmm. that's her name. And and I had never uh I'd never even heard of it and he actually let me borrow his copy. And it's all about the, the many benefits, you know, health benefits, psychological benefits, everything that comes from spending time in the outdoors. And I just it was stuff that I kind of had a gut feeling that I knew, but I never had any proof that, <laughs> that, that, uh, like scientific proof that I was right. But that book was unbelievable for just showing all the, the reasons that nature is so good for us. But most of that was from an individual standpoint. And when you throw in the whole teamwork standpoint and group dynamics, it's a whole different deal. So, yeah, I, I could talk about that all day, but you, you keep dropping all these kind of tidbits that make me very interested in your background. So I want to go ahead and talk about you. And I've, I know a little bit, but like the Grand Canyon and that kind of thing. So so where did you grow up?
1: Um, I grew up in Alaska, um, in the Matanuska Valley, just north of Anchorage.
0: Okay. And so how did you end up there? Is your, had your family been there for, for a while or did they move there? How did they end up in Alaska?
1: Yeah, my parents are both from Arizona, um, and back in the early, early 70s, my dad was working for the U.S. Geological Survey, and he was doing ice surveys up in Barrow, above okay. the Arctic Circle, um, and so he and my mom moved up there, and they built a house um, near the Matanuska River uh, in, I think, 1972. And then he's going to be up there forever. Um, my mom has since moved away. Um, but she, yeah, you know, and I think she was pretty glad to leave Alaska after 30 years up there. But um, my dad's still there. And I he built the house that I grew up in.
0: Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So growing up, up there, I mean, when you look at your life now, that's so deeply connected to the outdoors and, and creativity, I mean, are there... Are there any experiences you look back on and think oh, that that kind of laid the groundwork for for what I'm doing today? Or was it just kind of a a constant stream of experiences your whole life?
1: I think that uh, an Alaskan childhood is just so unique, and yeah. <laughs> so, so different. Um, you know, I, I I'm so grateful for my parents' decision to to have their family there, to start their family there. Um, you know, my brother and I just had so much freedom. Um, we, we grew up on 10 acres that were surrounded by more wilderness, you know, in, in all kinds of directions, and we didn't have nearby neighbors. And so my brother and I would, you know, we'd spend a lot of time outside, doing things like building forts and, um, going on these, these expeditions, you know, these little adventures where you'd be gone for hours at a time, looking for, looking for bugs, looking for, you know, critters in the woods. Um, so I think that freedom was just really unique and we were, we were encouraged to take a lot of risks. Um, not all of them calculated or supervised. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I just remember, you know, my, my dad just encouraging us to go out and work with his tools and drive the tractor around and sort of learn through our mistakes. And some of them were, you know, admittedly pretty painful, but, um, yeah, I also remember, I remember the, the darkness, um, in the wintertime and, uh, my dad had these kerosene lamps, and a generator. And, and, you know, our power would go out often when when we were young. And I just remember that darkness sort of creating something of a cocoon. Sure. And, you know, and in that cocoon, we did our, we did our things, you know, as a, as a little family of four. Um, and, and I think those explorations and the time on the water, you know, it wasn't, My family wasn't into anything, you know, nothing adrenaline-laced that we weren't, we didn't grow up really, you know, downhill skiing. I didn't learn to downhill ski until I went to college. And, But we grew up on the ocean fishing for halibut and on the banks of the rivers fishing for salmon. Um, Grew up playing hockey. And my Mm -hmm. mom had this beautiful vegetable garden that was huge and, you know, conveniently the size of a honky, hockey rink. So in the <laughs> wintertime, it would turn into a hockey rink. And, you know, I just, I have nothing but affection um, for, for my childhood in Alaska.
0: And so when did rivers enter your life? Because obviously, it's it's such a huge part now. Was, was that later on or was it, was it up there in Alaska? When did that kind of get into your blood and, and become such a focus?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time on these, these big silty salmon rivers in Alaska. Um, and their tributaries, mm-hmm. you know, their clear water tributaries. And mostly what we were doing was fishing a little bit of canoeing. Um, and, and we, we, you know, we spent a lot of time, like I said, on the ocean, and I I really think that the first time I ever went like white water rafting was in Montana on a family trip. I was probably 16, and that was in the Middle Fork of the Flathead, just outside Glacier National Park. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's and I, beautiful.
1: Oh yeah, it's gorgeous, and it's warm, and um, and that's different. <laughs> <laughs> and what we grew up with, you know, it's a totally different relationship with the water. Um, and I think, and that was transformative for sure. It was just a day trip. And I was like, man, this is, this is cool. Where you actually want the water, the water to splash you, and, <laughs> you know, actively avoiding.
0: Well, that's, it's funny that you say that you remember that as being warm. Cause I think when I was 16, I went on my first Western rafting trip And all I could think was how cold it was coming from Eastern North Carolina. (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, totally. All depends on that perspective. That's
0: right. Um, And so where did you end up going to going to college?
1: Yeah. So I ended up going to college in Bozeman, Montana. Cool. Cool. Yeah. For a brief moment there, kind of at the urging of a high school guidance counselor, I was I was set to go to a military academy.
0: (laughs) Were you really? Which one?
1: I was nominated to West Point, and then later to the Air Force Academy, wow. and um, yeah, which is super interesting to think back on. And uh, I, you know, at some point in my senior year of high school, I was like, wait, 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 no, this, can't, <laughs> this can't be my future. And um, I think it would have been a really interesting future. Sure, it would have, you know, and and certainly would have had a top notch education and no debt. But um, instead, I chose to. Go to Bozeman and ski a bunch, and still got a great education. But I also spent six and a half years in undergrad.
0: And well, it's, that's the thing is, is, it'd be easy to do there in Bozeman because there's just so many cool things to do. I mean, I think Boulder until Boulder got so expensive, I think that would probably be one of the coolest college towns. But now that you have to be like a billionaire to live in Boulder, I think Bozeman wins. I mean, that that place whatever you want to do you can do it there i mean it's just spectacular
1: oh yeah yeah it is and it's you know it gets as much sunshine every year as, as houston texas and so it's really hard it was really hard being an Alaskan kid getting there and like oh man it's sunny again i certainly cannot go <laughs> sit in the lecture hall i must be outside <laughs> and it's like a strange like visceral compulsion i i became a terrible student. When so I got to
0: when, what were your distractions there? I mean, what, what were you doing? What kind of outdoor stuff were you doing that, that just, because it, there's just so many things to choose from. Were you on the river a lot fishing? I mean, what, what kind of stuff were you doing?
1: Yeah, I, I you know, I, I had grown up sort of cross country skiing and then in, in Bozeman, I, I realized how much fun it is to succumb to gravity and go downhill on skis and <laughs> instead of fighting it. And so I was skiing as much as I could and working, working at Bridger bowl as a lift operator, nice. you know, kind of living the classic like Bozeman, you know, dream. And, um, <laughs> and so I was really distracted by that lifestyle and, uh, how I would just, I was, you know, I just wanted to get outside and hike and ride my bicycle And, um, and you, like you said, you can do that there any day of the year and get outside.
0: Well, you obviously, you know, laid a good foundation there because then you went on to get a Fulbright, correct? Yeah. So how did that come about? Cause that's, I mean, that's big time Fulbright.
1: Yeah. I feel really, really lucky. Um, that was a cool year. I, um, so I graduated from Bozeman and kind of had that classic undergraduate indecision and that's why it took me so long I switched my major half a dozen times and ended up with a degree in Spanish and a degree in art and I ended up getting back up to Alaska for a few years and teaching um, high school up okay. there and and I I've never really been able to spend more than a, a few years doing the same thing and I started to get itchy feet so I was like well. I'd really like to go to Ecuador and spend some time on those rivers and collect some stories. And so I applied for a Fulbright and, um, and they gave it to me. And so I, uh, left that teaching job and went down to Ecuador and lived in, um, a town called Latacunga, which is a couple hours South of the capital, Quito, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: way up high in the Andes. Um, and Yeah, kind of explored volcanoes and then um explored jungle rivers and and gosh, I just uh I owe so much to that experience.
0: Yeah, so what what did you get out of that? Because I my wife and I lived in Costa Rica for a year right after we got married and I'd never really been anywhere or spent any significant time internationally anywhere. I've been on some trips, like in the mountains and different countries, but it was not like a cultural experience. And I was 31 when, when we lived in Costa Rica for a year and it, it dramatically changed my perspective on things. I mean, I call that one of the most formative experiences of my life. And so how, how were you different when you left Ecuador than you were when you got there?
1: Ah, such a good question. What can I ask you what you were doing in Costa Rica?
0: So I tell people I was a professional surfer and my wife was my sponsor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She, she got a job, um, with a, her her whole career has been in international development and she got a job down there and it was, it was Oh nine. And it was when the real estate market had crashed and she had always wanted to live internationally, but thought it wouldn't work with my career. And so the, with the economy in the toilet, um, and luckily I'd gotten a scholarship to grad school. So I didn't have any debt. We were like, man, let's do it. Let's go. Why not? So we spent a year down there and I, I did a lot of volunteer work, but mostly surfing which was awesome.
1: <laughs> awesome. That it's important to have a sponsor these days. Yes, I'd
0: you got to have a sponsor. I was professional <laughs> I had that on my LinkedIn profile for a while but I decided to take it off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love
1: that. I love that.
0: But it was it was so formative and it changed my whole perspective on you know consumerism, on just the the way that Americans are perceived around the world and and you know Costa Rica's as far as countries developing countries go is is pretty nice. It's not like, like, you know, that, that different of a place, but it was so formative. So what, what did you think?
1: Oh yeah. I, um, I, you know, when I, when I got that Fulbright, I was one of the oldest, um, grantees in my cohort, which sort of ushered in a, a a bit of insecurity about, you know, here I am. And, you know, I remember being in the the embassy for the, 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 grantee orientation in Quito that first, that first, um, week of my grant year and just being surrounded by these brilliant, um, these brilliant minds, you know, like super creative kids. And, and I wasn't that much older, you know, I think I was 29 and, uh, but I definitely felt concerned about, yeah, I, I felt like competitive with them. Like, what are they going to do? What are their projects? You sure. know, like, what are they going to get out of this experience that I'm not? And one of the cool things about the Fulbright is that, um, you know, at least back then was that y- you could be completely autonomous and there wasn't a whole lot of direct supervision. And so once you got going and once you kind of found your stride in your community and your project started taking shape, it just it just felt like there was great, uh, a lot of a lot of room for creativity and and, and sort of you know self direction and and and, and self correction too um and so but that also meant that uh, you know there was a lot of like there was a pretty steep learning curve so i was working at a university um a public university in ladacunga um and i i guess one of the biggest lessons that i i still just hold so so close to my heart is this this idea of you know, patience is always going to, at the end of the day, win every, every battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you ran into this in, in Costa Rica too, this uh, sort of the effects of that, of that polychronism, this, this, you know, this, this, this perception of time that's totally antithetical to our North American, um, notion of, of forward progress always, yes. you know? And so, um, you know, it's, it kind of is, is, is manifest in the, the inefficiency and the lack of punctuality and the seeming disrespect of time. And, um, and that was always really frustrating for me because I am very gold driven and I love to check things off of my list. And I like to say that was a productive day, um, because I accomplished X, Y, and Z. And in Ecuador, that's not on anyone's radar. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, that to me was really challenging. Um, but the more time that I spent there and the more work that I did there and the more people I interacted with, the more I, I saw that the, the flip side of that inefficiency was this obsession or, or, or just cultural, the, the, the priority was in the quality of the work and the being with others rather than the doing of the of the work and the accompli- you know, the checking off of the, the goal off the list. Um, and so again, that kind of comes back to what we were talking about before this flexibility and awareness of the, of the value of doing less and the value of discussion and face to face interactions and, and, and slow, deliberate, sometimes inefficient movement through the world.
0: That's yeah and that's funny you say that because I feel like I I learned that exact same thing in my experience there and I hadn't really ever thought about it in those exact terms but I definitely walked away with that. I mean I was coming out of an MBA, you know, where is that is as American as you can get as far as yeah. you know cranking through stuff efficiency um, you know the whole all about the bottom line and then you go there and it's so refreshing. This is Kind of a generalization, but when you looked at the the average citizen down there and compared them to average American citizen, did they seem happier or or did they seem more or less content than Americans? Because in my experience at Costa Rica, they seemed so much more content, especially the children, because I did a lot of volunteer work with kids, and they just all seemed so much happier than American kids, even though they had just a fraction of the wealth. And I don't know if you, if you shared that experience or not, but I, I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I wonder sometimes if it's, um, you know, it is, it is a, a big generalization, but I, I wonder sometimes if it's, if it's a function, you know, that, that happiness or that contentment is, is a function of just, um, being okay with where you're at and, and what you've got and, and maybe just, a. a uh, like a lesser to a lesser extent um chasing ambitions mm-hmm. and chasing social s- constructs and and trying to meet those milestones
0: yeah it's a fine line between the ambition and <laughs> what you know <laughs> you know the, the happiness aspect um yeah um that yeah that's interesting i i could talk to you about that stuff all day because that was such a had you had you traveled much internationally before you did that before
1: yeah 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 you know not as I had lived in Spain for a while in my undergrad on an exchange, and I had traveled to Central America and Mexico, um, but that was the farthest south I'd ever been.
0: Yeah, it was. I loved it, and my wife and I try to get down there every so often, and it's um, it's special. in down there, it's very good kind of reality check, I think, for me to to go down there and, and <laughs> kind of see see things other than the united states every now and then um so when did writing become such a focus in your life um
1: yeah i i feel like i've always been something of a a writer or at least i've i've always done it you know with or without that that label of of writer Uh, yeah and um So I guess, you know, it it was mostly a a hobby and and then a dream, you know, when you think about the thing you'd most want to do, if you could do anything, you know, I'd always dream about having adventures and, and writing about them. And, um, and I, I suppose that, um, when I was thinking about graduate school, I was really thinking about, um, storytelling, but within I, toward ethnography. And I was really interested in the the anthropology of environments. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was looking at, at, at graduate school, but with the intention of doing a lot of writing and hopefully, um, um, you know, getting into that environmental anthropology realm. Um, and, 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 you know, I ended up bowing out of the, that, 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 um, PhD track with the the environmental anthropology focus and just sort of stopping after a master's degree in environmental writing.
0: Got it. And what, what was the, what caused you to make that decision? Cause I mean, I, I, a PhD is such a, such an endurance test and, and uh, wh- why did you decide to go after, you know, to, to take a, a break from that or, or step away from that?
1: Yeah, it was, that was a really hard decision to make. And I think, um, I feel like so much of it had to do with, you know, a timing. I was, mm-hmm. I was just really ready to, um, stop moving around so much sure. and, and be the, the place I ended up in. Um, you know, I went to graduate school in Missoula after being out of Montana for a really long time. Um, and I got back to Missoula and I, for the, maybe the first time in my life, I just felt an incredible urge to stop mm-hmm. and stay. Um, and, and, you know, the two programs that I was looking at for this, this PhD were you know, one was in Providence, Rhode Island, the other one was Palo Alto, California. And I just felt that I was at a place in my life where I wasn't willing to trade um, the place for, for the study. And um, so I stayed.
0: Good for you. And Missoula is, I mean, that is one of the coolest places around as, <laughs> as you well yeah. know. I mean, that, and I think that takes guts to, to make a stand like that on, on, you know, when you've, when you've got different opportunities. I mean, that, that can be a hard choice to make. Um, And so how long have you been in Missoula now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Four years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Well, I moved here in, yeah, 2014 yeah 20 oh wow so five years <laughs> five years almost now
0: and so you're also a teacher this I mean you you've got so much going on and it's also cool so can you talk about teaching
1: yeah for sure um teaching kind of been the staple for me um it's been a really nice uh balance sort of a counterpoint to the to the dirtbag guiding lifestyle um I've taught Spanish at the high school level and then adjunct, you know, sort of adjunct work at the university, um, as well. And so that's been, that's been such a, a source of stability and, um, and inspiration for me for, you know, ever since about 2007 off and on.
0: And so ge- has it generally the, the, kind of the flow of things been teach during the, the school year and then guide during the summers? Um, has that, has that generally been how it's wor- how it has worked?
1: Totally. And yeah.
0: when did you start guiding in the Grand Canyon?
1: Um, so I'm, this will be my fourth season in the Grand Canyon coming up.
0: Wow. That was, so when I was in high school, my dad and I, um, did a, a tra- rafting trip down the Grand Canyon with, um, Western river expeditions. Yeah. And, um, that was my first time, uh, going anywhere west of the Mississippi. And I mean, that was one of the, one of the coolest trips I've ever, ever been on. And I think it it's what planted the seed for really my, my whole career. Um, oh, cool. can you, can you just talk a little bit about your connection to the grand Canyon? Because several of my podcast guests just go, you know, that they talk about the grand Canyon as being the most important place in their lives. Um, like I've had Pete McBride on who's, I mean, his whole career is basically based around the Grand Canyon. And then yeah. the author Hampton Sides, he said that's his favorite place in the American West. I think Brendan Leonard said it's his favorite place. What does that, what does it mean to you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an easy place to claim as your favorite. That's for certain. Um, you know, I, like I said, my parents are from, um Arizona. My dad grew up in Prescott, which is not so far from the Grand Canyon. Um, and, you know, I remember there going, you know, going there as a kid and, and visiting and, and just being completely baffled by that place. And then learning later on that you can float down that river in rafts and um, just feeling Really, kind of just intrigued, of course, as most humans are by by the Grand Canyon, um, and I I guess for a long time, you know, I've been guiding my entire adult life, and I feel like it was always sort of a pie in the sky um, career goal when it came to guiding, and yep. I think it is for a lot of river guides, um, and after you know, my last season in Alaska, I just decided I wanted to be warm and, (laughs) um, and man, I'll tell you what, July in Grand Canyon, (laughs) you can be warm. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) That's great. So, you know, I think guiding obviously is just this dream job, but the the reality is it's, it's extremely, it's extremely hard work. And on top of just the, the physical nature of it, you're, dealing with clients and there are all these different personalities. And so I guess what, what lessons are there? Any lessons you've learned from dealing from guiding and from dealing with clients and dealing with personalities that you've been able to apply to, to other parts of your life? Cause I would imagine there are lessons there that have carried over to teaching and have carried over to uh, free flow and, and then, you know, vice versa as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, one thing that always, that I always try to keep in mind, um, when we go on those longer trips in the Grand Canyon and everything's hot and everything's sandy and, you know, people are perpetually dehydrated and, um, is, is just, is just the sort of fragility of our emotions when, when we feel, um, beat down by elements and how, how important it is to be careful with our words and careful with our bodies as, you know, you move through that through that river corridor and through that like prickly and, and, and pretty, you know, spicy landscape. Mm -hmm. Um, But also to really protect the integrity of the group by being careful with, you know, your words and your actions.
0: Yeah, that that is the deal. That's what I learned on Knowles. You know, they always talked about expedition behavior, and mm. my my course. We were out there for three months, and it was nine guys between the age of eighteen and like twenty two. So just very very full of testosterone, and you know there was <laughs> there yeah. were a few few breaking points along the way, but <laughs> all sure. good lessons learned. Um, so thinking about I'm talking more about writing and you know your personal experience writing and then all the time you've spent with both you know well-known writers and then aspiring writers and people that that love to write when when you I, i'm always very interested in just kind of the the creative process and and how that works and when you look at all these writers whether they're they're well-known or not but just kind of prolific writers and people who writing is a big part of their life would you say that the 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 secret is more innate inborn talent or is it hard work which which one which one matters more with writing oh man or is Um, it both could be both
1: yeah yeah well i mean no doubt that talent is a I mean that's a bonus if you're trying to be a writer and you're good at it yeah. <laughs> like, I think you know that's great um and so there is tremendous talent in 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 the community of writers that I've been you know so fortunate in, to, to 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 work within and operate within and I you know I, it's it's marvelous and it's um it's hard it, sometimes I'm, I'm just amazed at the ideas that, that these people are able to, to put down on paper. Um, but then I think with any with any sort of work, with any sort of, you know, prolonged endeavor, the talent has to be coupled with tenacity and discipline mm-hmm. and de- dedication. And so, you know, I, I would be hard-pressed to name one writer that I'm acquainted with who's not fiercely dedicated to their craft.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things – the common themes that comes up with any writers is that that discipline and i think brendan is is one of the guys that that really has made a point of making sure everybody understands that it's you know it is hard work and it is discipline and and that book he wrote called make it till you make it i don't know if you've read that but it's Mm -hmm. um you know 40 myths and, and truths about creativity and i love that book just because he makes it clear like you just got to do it, you know, I mean, you, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you're not doing it consistently, it's just it's not going to go anywhere, which I, th- I think is kind of refreshing um, that, that you can work. You know, you got to have talent, but you also need to work hard. And you can control the work. You can't control inborn talent.
1: That's right. That's right. And, and I feel like, you know, as with any skill set, as long as you have that that drive to develop, you know, your your abilities, you know, you can start with the, the the tiniest spark of innate talent, I feel. And maybe talent in this case is synonymous with just desire. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then if you put your time in and you work hard, I mean, there's, it's, just, I would imagine it's just like, it's just like learning anything else, a sport, you know, a discipline, it just takes persistence.
0: So with your personal writing, when you sit down to write, do you have any routines you go through or any specific way you go about it or like a specific time of day or a specific amount of time you sit down and commit to writing or how does it, what does it look like when you, when you sit down to write? Cause whenever I sit down to write, all of a sudden I have about a hundred different things that I need to be doing, like cleaning the house or, you know, mowing the grass or something. I can come up with any excuse, not to just sit there. And so oh, yeah. what does it look like for you?
1: oh yeah I mean that's that's spot on Ed I mean it's just the first and foremost it's mitigation of the urge to like do dishes <laughs> I hate doing dishes but all <laughs> of a sudden man those dishes have got to get washed um, yeah or like sweeping all the ghost dogs out of the corner you know like they've been there for weeks like they can sit there a little bit longer I think, like, accumulation of dog fur but I um, yeah you know for me and, and right now, and maybe you know, ever since I got out of grad school, the the, the persistent challenge is just freeing up time. And um, so for me when I when I want to write and when I need to write, I get up really early um, you know before 5 am and uh, and then that's when it's quiet and that's when um, my mind is still fresh, you know, this time of day. Um at the end of a day of teaching it's <laughs> there's not much like unique or creative or original thought that's coming out of my brain.
0: Were you up at four thirty this morning?
1: Uh yeah, yeah I was. And that's your machine. Yeah, I'm a morning I'm a morning person. And then, you know, eight thirty I'm ready for bed. <laughs> <laughs> and socially, this is hard. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, I like to get up early and I, I, on, on mornings when I write, I just try to get something down, you know, something other than emails or content or, you know, God forbid lesson plans, you know, like something creative and, and something for, for a project. Um, um, and I guess I, I try to, you know, cause I'm pretty spread out. I try to keep little notebooks everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I carry, I carry a notebook with me all the time. And then I, I just try to keep them hidden in strategic places, um, various bags and whatnot. And then I guess when it comes to um, the arrangement and, and alignment of words and ideas, I, I love like sticky notes and colors. And um, I like to be all just spread out and, move things around physically until they make sense um until i can i can see them taking form um in a paragraph or a page
0: that's really cool i love i love hearing that because i have a lot of different you know obviously writers and then different artists and the the techniques are so different and so I think, I mean, I think that's one of these things where, you know, I can ask you that and maybe somebody's listening who wants to be a writer and they'll try that. But it seems like from all these people I've spoken to that the system is not as important. The individual system is not as important as actually just having your system. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, everybody's going to be different, but I think in the end, you just need to have a system that you can stick to. It's, it seems to be the commonality so far
1: absolutely yeah and that's i mean and that question that you just asked me is one of my favorite questions to ask anyone who excels at what they do you know what what does your day-to-day look like like what w- walk me through your morning you know let me know about your systems because that's so that's so revealing of you know the the structure of a life that leads to you know good work
0: yeah i completely agree there's some book I haven't read it, but somebody told me to read it called like Morning Routines, I think. And it goes through, it follows several different, uh, list out several different creatives and goes through kind of what they do in the morning. I'll put a link to it on the on the website, but I, I need to read that because I'm so interested in that. And speaking of you asking people about their routines and, and reading and authors, do you, who, who do you look up to in the, in the literary world? I mean, you could either know them or they could just be, it could be somebody who died 100 years ago, but you love their their work. Um, do you have any kind of mentors or heroes in, in the literary world?
1: Oh, man, so many. You know, so many. Um, one of my heroes, you know, that I've been – I'm super lucky that I get to live just a couple towns away from him is, of course, David James Duncan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I read The River Why in high school, and it quickly became – you know, an obsession for me. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I, and again, I was able to, was lucky enough to take a, a writing course from him. Oh, in, really? Yeah, in 2016 when I was in school. Wow. And he's remained a, like a something i mean he's accessible he's he he returns emails we converse he's supportive um and he's actually agreed to do a a free flow trip in 2020 really you know yeah that's huge and 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 i remember at this um you know to backtrack a a moment i remember at that writing workshop that i did with him through the university in montana we had to submit a a manuscript, and my manuscript was about working in the Grand Canyon, and he wrote a little note on there that said something like, "Oh, well, we are cousins," you know, kind of, <laughs> re- kind of referring to our shared love for rivers. And I just melted, and I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> David James Duncan's cousin," and, <laughs> and so you know, just the way that he is able to translate like the physical poetry of rivers with words into his, you know, singular prose. It's just, it's, it's amazing. So I would say he's, he's a hero. Um, you know, I just, uh, on a, I guess I have a, some amazing and talented friends who continually astound me with their, their capacity. Um, no one, I mean, some of them are, are, are well known in their circles, but for the most part these are just creative ambitious individuals you know scientists educators athletes activists um feel really fortunate to be surrounded by incredible group of human beings in my day-to-day life
0: i think that's so important you know i think i think being able to get that energy from from other people um other creative people and even if you're not in the same field just the 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 mere like merely being in the presence of other creative people makes such a difference. I think, um, the, the, you mentioned, um, how he wrote on your, your paper that your cousins, and I was listening to a podcast recently with Chris Dombrowski. Is that how you say his last name?
1: Yeah. And yeah. and
0: he's going to be one of your instructors, right? Um, yeah.
1: In, yeah. This coming summer.
0: Yeah. And he just seemed like the coolest guy and he's a poet and he writes about rivers and fishing. And he was talking about, how he got a nod from uh, Duncan at some point, and and how wh- what a huge thing, what a huge um, boost that was to him. So it sounds like he's just <laughs> just such a uh, such a, a, a generous guy, you know, and and has made such a difference in so many writers' lives. That's really cool to hear.
1: Oh, super cool! It's super cool. Yeah, I mean, you hold someone like David on a on a pedestal, you know, artistically and and and. Um, and just, you know, he's, he's he is an absolute hero, you know, literary hero and and then to have him acknowledge your tiny little, you know, spark of promise you're like, ah, you cling to it, you know. <laughs> yeah, and um yeah, I know that he that that David really um has a has a strong respect for Kristen Browski too. They've got a really cool sort of um uh relationship.
0: I wanted to read uh, his book, The Body of Water book, and um, after hearing him talk, because he just seemed like such a cool guy, but I went to Amazon, and it was sold out, because he was on Stephen Rinella's podcast, and so I'm sure that was a, I'm sure he he got quite the boost in Amazon sales, but as soon as that thing's back in stock, I'm going to read it, because it looks, it sounds really awesome.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's a Because like you said, he's a poet, and he's taken this, you know, this topic, which is, um which could be a little too niche, you know, mm-hmm. like fishing for bone for for bonefish in the Bahamas, and he's made it into something incredibly readable and in, incredibly appealing. It's it's a beautiful book.
0: I will check it out. My, my list just gets longer and longer after talking to folks like you. There's just so many good <laughs> good yeah. books out there. Um, yeah. So at, at the beginning, I want to circle back to one thing you said as part of the free flow. Um, mission you you know trying to connect people to to nature and that, that conservation ethic and this is a probably a hard question but when you think about you know all the time you have spent on rivers around the world really but when you think about the west and you think about conservation you know, what is there a specific issue that comes to your mind something you've seen that is of concern really you know a big conservation concern that you think may be uh, could, could be a problem in the future, something that needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think, um, you know, a lot of my work has been pretty river centric and, and, and actually pretty focused on, um, dams and, uh, you know, that's, that's a big, <clears throat> it's a big point of interest for me. I I really like to look into, you know, our, not just here in this country, but, um, globally, like why, what compels us to continue building dams? What compels us to dismantle old dams? Um, what do dams mean for, for the nostalgia of a culture, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I've done quite a bit of reading and, and, and research and, and work, um, looking into the uh the the Snake and Columbia River system and um for me this remains and is getting one thing I'm really happy about is this is finally getting a lot of um press and, and and attention in the mainstream media is this uh you know the dwindling salmon population in that in the the Snake Columbia River system and how um salmon as um sort of magical Indicators and facilitators of ecological connectivity are, are are slowly disappearing, or maybe not even slowly disappearing. And then, as a function of that, you know, we're losing um, we're losing members of the southern resident orca population, um, and you know, we're noticing and massive changes in the headwaters with regard to the, um, ecological, um, functioning in these mountain tributaries. And, um, so, you know, to kind of zoom out, I think that, um, to me, this, this habitat fragmentation and ecosystem fragmentation, whether it's riverine or terrestrial, um, you know, that seems to me to be, um, if we could put, a label on sort of an umbrella issue, um, that seems to worry me the most. I think it would be that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I deal a lot with water and water rights and in my job. Um, and it's, it is unbelievably complex. And the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Um, what, are there any books on that subject or even articles or web resources that stick out in your head? If somebody wanted to learn more, they could they could go and check that out
1: yeah specifically on the 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 snake in columbia yeah
0: yeah
1: oh yeah there's um there are a number of books um steven Hawley, h-a-w-l-e-y he um another good friend of or maybe apprentice of sorts of david james duncan he wrote a really nice book about um about that and i can't recall the name of it right now i'll find Um, it and
0: put it on yeah yeah
1: definitely and he actually just made a a documentary too um which i think will be released soon um called "Damned to extinction about that same river system i haven't seen it but probably worth checking out um there's a book called um a river lost and i can't recall the the author of that book but i'm sure you could find that too and that's sort of a historical look, um, at the dams in that river system and, and sort of their, you know, why they're there and why they're still there. Um, and, and what they mean, you know, to the future health of the system and for the populations in the, you know, the human populations in in that area too.
0: Yeah. I mentioned my wife doing international development work and that was a lot of what she would do. And I think like in Brazil and places like that, where these companies would come in and start building dams and they would just clear out these populations of people, generally extremely, extremely poor people and, and, you know, flood, you know, flood towns. Yeah. Um, And, and so it's not just in other, you know, in a lot of developing countries, it's an environmental issue, but it's also a human rights issue, which a lot of people don't understand.
1: Oh yeah, totally. Totally.
0: Um, Well, we're coming up on both of our bedtimes, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, and I can't believe I just look at the timer. We've been talking for 59 minutes. So wow. which is wild. Um, so I've got some kind of quick questions that I like to run through with everybody. And so can we can we go through those? Do you have time to go through those real quick? Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so thinking about all the books you've read, and you've obviously very, very well read. Do, is there are there any books that stick out in your head as your favorite books about the American West?
1: Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, for sure. Um, so many, but, uh, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased toward this, um, that John McPhee book called coming into the country about his explorations in Alaska mm-hmm. in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good one. That's yeah. a great one.
0: And he, I would guess from your, from your perspective too, just anything McPhee is just, such a good, good thing to read as far as (laughs) instruction on how to write. Yeah. He's the master.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's no better teacher than, than a McPhee book. If you just want to, I mean, his, his sentences are, are perfectly crafted and, um, yeah, he's a master by all, by all definitions.
0: And what's your favorite book of all time? If you have one. Oh,
1: wow. So, um, I really love um, Wade Davis. I don't know if you heard of him. I saw
0: him speak one time, and he was super cool. I met him; he was so cool.
1: He's super cool. Yeah, he's great. He's Canadian uh, ethnobotanist and anthropologist. So anything by Wade Davis, but um, I love the book that he wrote about the uh, the the sort of um, uh, the use of plants in the Amazon Basin called One River. It's a beautiful book. It reads like fiction, but it's just loaded with facts and history and numbers. Um, and then I, I think, you know, um, it's it's fiction and it's far from the American West, but A uh, Hundred Years of Solitude by Garcia Marquez is probably my number one favorite book of all time.
0: I've never read that. But my wife has read it and loves it. Um,
1: it's beautiful.
0: That's cool. I need to read that. I I just oh, yeah. I have a problem reading I I can't read fiction for some reason. I get I get real antsy. Like I'm not learning anything and I know yeah. that's stupid and it's not true. Cause I can't, you can learn a lot from fiction, but I've got a mental block on that. I need to, I need to work on
1: that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's super common and we're so limited on the, the number of hours that we can dedicate to reading. I mean, we have to, we have to pick and choose, but I think it's good for the spirit to read some fiction every once in a while.
0: I agree completely. Um, do you have any favorite films or documentaries?
1: Um, I, I guess kind of an oldie, but a goodie is that, um, that, that, that film Baraka that came out a number of years ago. It's just an amalgamation of images from across the world. Um, and then one, you know, coming back to, to Hal Herring, um, that film that he was in, uh, that David Byers produced a couple of years ago about the, the Malheur and the Bundy debacle called No Man's Land. Um, I just would love to little put a little plug in for for that film if people haven't seen it it's it's fantastic super unique perspective
0: I I have not seen that so I'll I'm going to look that up and I'll, I'll yeah. put links to it um you've obviously got an extremely full life from four thirty in the morning until bedtime every day <laughs> <What's>, <laughs> but you know other than other than rivers and and writing and all the the great stuff you do, do are there any hobbies other hobbies you have is there anything kind of weird or interesting that you you would do that might be surprising for the listeners like I learned how to knit one time and I still do it sometimes
1: oh that's a super useful hobby yeah
0: yeah well I just I kind of do it like frantically and just make I guess they're supposed to be scarves but it's really just something to keep me busy if I have to sit still so I I wouldn't say I'm talented but I can do it
1: (laughs) (laughs) a cure for the idle hands yeah yeah no that's great um I suppose, you know, skiing, kayaking and playing with my my canine friend Arlo. Um and then I guess, you know, surprising I you know, I just love live music. I don't know if that's surprising, but I spend I spend far too many dollars annually on flying around the country to see shows.
0: Who's your favorite? Who who do you go see a lot?
1: Oh, I hope this doesn't you know, plunge me into a, a pigeonhole, but I just love. <laughs> you'll you'll understand and appreciate this, I imagine. I just love uh, widespread panic.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was that was the the soundtrack of of high school and college for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: They've yeah. got
0: staying power too. I mean, they are. Oh, yeah. um, it's unbelievable the career they've had.
1: It's, it is amazing. They're,
0: They're the amazing. modern day Grateful Dead.
1: Oh, totally, totally.
0: Them yeah. and fish. I mean, they're a little different than fish. I mean, they're they're a lot different from fish, but I feel like fish and widespread are it's unbelievable what the careers they've been able to have. Whether you like the music or not, you've got to respect their their careers. I mean, it's it's amazing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so when you think about all these outdoor experiences you have you have had, is there one that comes to mind that you would say is the most powerful outdoor experience you've ever had? And it could be that could mean scary, funny, memorable. Is there, is there one that sticks out in your mind?
1: You know, there are so many, um, you know, lots of memories on, on, you know, from our boat in Alaska, like, you know, fishing for halibut. And then there was one time when I was really young and I was like, gosh, this is, this has got to be a 350 pound halibut. And we get it up to the, it takes us about an hour to reel the thing in. And we get it up to the, to the swim platform of the, of the boat. we get a little 28 foot bay liner. And, um, it's just a little, little tiny halibut base, you know, and my dad's like, oh, that's, that's not right. And then we <laughs> reel it in a little bit farther and there's a is a damn sea lion that has attached itself what? to the lower half of that halibut it's maybe a 15 pound halibut. And, um, you know, and so then we've got a, a big old sea lion on our, on our swim deck of this boat. And I just, I just remember that as being one of the craziest, you know moments and my dad's like firing off his 44 and my mom's screaming and there's water coming over the back of the boat and uh I don't you know and, and I just remember kind of letting go of the fishing pole <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know what happens now but we gotta something's gotta change and eventually that that, that sea lion swam away and he won he got the halibut
0: that, yeah, well, he deserved it. That's a tough sea <laughs> lion. Holy, that's that's crazy. That is really crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah, weird stuff like that. I mean, that's what you get growing up in Alaska. You get weird, weird experiences like that, and so I, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, and identify one super powerful um, moment. You know, there's all those sunsets in Grand Canyon too. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and moonrises in Grand Canyon that somehow somehow just amplify memories and somehow serve to, to connect you to, you know, the, the, the self that you are below the rim and everything that happens above it. And I think those are pretty powerful moments too.
0: Definitely. And that leads me to my next question, which you may have just answered. Um, your favorite location in the West is it the grand Canyon?
1: I, yeah, gosh. Um, again, I don't know if I could choose one place. I, and
0: I, I, I couldn't pick one. I ask the question every yeah. time and I don't have an answer. So yeah, it's hard, It's way too hard to pick one.
1: It's hard. And, you know, but, and I would say, um, right now I'm really fond of, of where I live. I live, um, I'm really drawn to confluences, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of the meeting place of two rivers. And I'm lucky enough to live at a place that, that sits right at the confluence of two beautiful, beautiful Montana rivers and right now this is as close to my favorite spot as as anything's ever been
0: that's a good feeling you're, yeah. in, you're in the right spot um definitely better than Providence Rhode Island I mean nothing <laughs> against Providence Rhode Island but it's, it's not Missoula, <laughs> it's
1: not Missoula. <laughs> um
0: when you think about this is a hard question but think about the best advice you've ever received does anything come to mind
1: yeah I think there's one piece of advice that I always just Anyone who knows me has probably heard it a dozen times just because I, and I don't actually know who told this to me first. Um, but the notion that there, there are no mistakes, just lessons and Mm -hmm. those lessons will be repeated until they are learned. And so we should probably learn them sooner than later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I'd heard the first part, but never the part that they're going to continue. I think that's very true. That's great. Um, so next to the last question, if you could make a request of the people that listen to this podcast and it's people that love the American West, whether through sports or conservation or art, um, if you could offer words of wisdom or ask them to do something, is there anything that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I'd say, I think this, I I try to remind myself of this, you know, daily, um, think listen more listen harder um and uh you know leave space for curiosity um you know and that involves often withholding judgment and withholding uh you know what you or or at least keeping at bay what you think is your truth until you've you've listened to to other people's truths. And so I think, yeah, that, that notion of cultivating and encouraging curiosity in yourself and in, in, in your community, I think that's super important right now.
0: Yeah. Now more than ever. I mean, I think it's always been important, but at this point in history, I think everybody could, should heed that advice. That's, that's great. So how can people find out more about you, more about free flow, social media, websites, all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, for sure. So free flow um www.freeflowinstitute.com, pretty easy and we've got a an instagram and a and a facebook um and i I don't have um an instagram or a twitter or anything but um yeah a lot of my work is 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 a bit, is up and and published on the on the internet and um and I'll try to maybe update the free flow site with anything new that comes along
0: great well this was so fun i'm so glad we got introduced i mean it's just what you're doing is so perfect for what i'm interested in on this podcast and what everybody that listens to it is so i i really appreciate you taking the time uh then and, and realize i'm not some creepy dude sending you emails on the internet
1: <laughs> <laughs> i never thought that ed, and it's been an absolute pleasure thanks so much for taking an interest
0: hey it's ed again